Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of the podcast, History Tells You. Today, we're going to be talking about the space race, and we had an awesome interview with Dr. John Logston, uh, who's written extensively about space history and specifically John Kennedy and his role in the space race. But before we get to that interview, I definitely wanted to do some background on the roots of the space race and kind of just brief history because we do go pretty well in the depth um, really into the race and its impact on the Cold War, its impact on, uh, on the United States and all of that. Now, in my view, and based off the research, the space race really starts in Germany during World War II when the Germans are really able to develop, you know, the very beginnings of ballistic missile technology. Um, really spearheaded by different scientists uh, across the Nazi regime, um, specifically in the form of the V-1 and V-2 rockets, which were used extensively in 1944 and 1945 um, against places like London and uh, Brussels um, and all these different places. So it's really at the beginning, it's during World War II in Germany when uh, missile technology is developed and is implemented for war. Um but also, um, a lot of these uh, missiles had the ability to be used for suborbital space flights. So it's really during this that the very idea and the, the idea of going to space begins to develop, I think, during World War II is really specifically for more of a space. Uh, it was really more for a military matter rather than a scientific one. But a lot, one of the key things that happens after World War II is the Allies really push in to try and capture a lot of these scientists, engineers, um, people that were involved in this program. Uh, specifically for the United States, it was called Operation Paperclip. And I think it ended up with almost like 1,500 um, scientists and engineers that ended up being captured and brought back to the United States to work in various uh, scientific fields. Uh, one of the key people of that was Werder von Braun, who was the technical director of Nazi Germany's missile program and develop, helped develop the V-1 and V-2 rocket um, and was instrumental in developing the rocket technology that would take uh, a lot of the astronauts to uh, the moon in the um, Mercury and Apollo programs. So it was really from the start that the, you know, the United States and Soviet Union sort of began to pursue this idea of going to space on the side. But the key thing was um, the influence of the nuclear arms race, in my view, because you know, the push to create ballistic missiles that could carry nuclear warheads was super important. Um, and that really, the focus on developing that technology sort of leads into uh, this idea of going to space. And I think the key event, which we do talk about in the interview, was um, Sputnik, um, which was, you know, one of the first satellites to kind of orbit Earth and what was viewed as a huge um, Soviet victory over the United States really galvanized NASA, which had just been formed, I believe, in 1958, the year after, um, and the United States government to pursue a long-term goal towards the United States or towards um, landing someone on the moon. So, you know, it's really Sputnik that, you know, sparks this race, in my opinion. So... There were different people that were involved in pursuing these sorts of things, but it's, in my view, Sputnik that really sparks um, this idea that, yeah, we need to fund these programs to go to space. Um, so that's just a little bit background on the space race. We pretty much in our interview go from the start of the race up until pretty much now. Um, but we focused heavily on the late 50s and 60s when the Mercury and Apollo programs were well underway and the role of John F. Kennedy and different people in his administration um, and getting people to the moon. Um, overall, it was a super interesting interview and probably, again, one of my favorites so far. Um, space history is one of my favorite you know, recent areas that I really enjoyed reading about, um, especially as there's, it seems like there's a revivalism of going to space and space exploration with you know, Elon Musk and Tesla and, you know, the creation of the U.S. Space Force, as silly as it sounds, you know, and as technology continues to improve, it 
ideally it would be getting easier and easier to get the space. So while in the past it's always cost tons of money in order to accomplish that, you know, we could be heading towards this place where, you know, space could be, you know, commercialized and militarized. So I think, again, we're heading into this really interesting era in space history and one that I'm looking forward to, but also kind of understanding the roots of space exploration in the 50s and 60s um, and the space race really contributed heavily to that. So um, with that, we'll get right into the interview. So today, on today's podcast, we're lucky to welcome Dr. John Logston, who is a professor at George Washington University. Dr. Logston's research interest focuses on policy and historical aspects of U.S. and international space activities. He's also the author of the award-winning book, John F. Kennedy and the Race to the Moon, and After Apollo, Richard Nixon and the American Space Program. And he is also a former member of the NASA Advisory Council and the Exploration Committee. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Doctor. Uh, glad to be here. Um, so to start off, just some brief questions. What is your favorite part of history to research and talk about? Uh, why is it your favorite, and how did you kind of end up on focusing on uh, space history? Well, first of all, I'm not a historian by training. I'm a political scientist. And when I uh, uh, went back to graduate school in political science, the space program was happening all around me. And so from uh, the get-go at, at graduate school, I wrote about politics of space. Uh, and, and that kind of uh, my dissertation turned into the first book I wrote about Kennedy and the decision to go to the moon. So what I do is political history. Uh, and, and people think of me as a historian. I think of myself as, as an analyst that uses history uh, as a tool of analysis. Okay. Um, so to follow up, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered, whether it's researching kind of like political science or um, pretty much in general, what are some of the challenges that you faced? Well, I think uh, there, there are recent challenges, which I'm, I'm still doing this sort of stuff, and I've discovered uh, that there will be no uh, – Obama presidential library with documents in it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's going to be digitized and available online. And I really like going to presidential libraries. I'm going to the George H.W. Bush Library next week uh, and, and, and uh, touching the documents and seeing what's next to them. Uh, so one of the challenges uh, I think is the increasing uh, of, of the historical records and, and that so much is done by email. So that's one challenge. Another is that you can never really reconstruct the conversations. People write on documents what they realize future historians may look at, uh, but you can't be in the room and participate in the actual discussions uh, very much. And, and so you don't really know, well, for example, uh, writing about Kennedy and the decision to go to the moon, I don't have any idea whether he, John Kennedy, as president, talked to his trusted advisor and brother, Bobby Kennedy, about this decision. I'd love to know that, but there's no record of it. And then uh -huh. finally, a lot of this stuff is classified. And, uh -huh. and uh, it's supposed to be declassified after 25 years, uh, but that doesn't always happen. When I did the most recent book, uh, which is, was on Ronald Reagan, I discovered that lots of the Reagan material uh, was still classified, had never been reviewed, and therefore uh, it couldn't be declassified, and that's a little frustrating. Uh-huh. Now, something that um, just to get your input about when you're going into these presidential libraries, do you have a certain approach to how you read the documents or organize the documents, or do you kind of just get in there, you know, grab the relevant documents that I think are interesting and just start reading it? Well, um, that's where I'm being a historian or doing this historically. I, I just try to follow the chronology and try to understand, uh, you know, what happened first, what happened next, how they were connected. So um, in, in presidential libraries, they're pretty well organized by subject files. 
and that's relatively easy to do. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So we can kind of switch gears to more relevant questions about the space race. Uh, my first question is, when does the space race really begin? Is this something that begins right after World War II when tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union kind of increase, or is this something that kind of later developed in the 1950s under President Eisenhower? Well, you really define, uh, depends on how you define space race. Certainly the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union for global leadership and global influence started at the end of World War II uh, and, and, and uh, uh, continued through the 1950s. Uh, there were decisions made in the early 50s through the mid-50s uh, there was a collaborative international scientific program called the International Geophysical Year, and both the United States and the Soviet Union announced that they were going to launch a satellite as part of their participation in that IGY. Uh, uh, at that point, it wasn't really a race to launch first, but there were people in both countries that wanted to be first, uh, von Braun in the United States, uh, Sergei Korolev in the Soviet Union. So there were elements of, of a race among the space people. And then after Sputnik and after Nikita Khrushchev discovered uh, how powerful a propaganda tool being first in space was, uh, he, Khrushchev, defined the race. He said, because we're first in space, uh, that shows we are a superior society, uh, that, that capitalism is dying and, and communism and socialism is the wave of the future. So he basically, Khrushchev, started the race. Mm -hmm. So one of the people I've been reading about uh, was President Eisenhower kind of in the, his presidency. Why was he sort of reluctant to pursue space travel and try and match Soviet achievements in space um, with own achievements with the United States. Um, obviously, he was the commanding general of Allied forces on the Western Front during World War II and came from a military background. Why do you think he was sort of reluctant to do that? Well, uh, I think there are a couple of reasons. One, he was a fiscal conservative, and, and he had been faced from the time he came to the White House in 1953 with the idea in among the military to uh, spend a lot of money on weapon systems and, and new equipment. And he, he didn't want to spend that much money. He thought that the best security for the United States was a healthy, balanced economy. Uh, and then he did not think, and it was probably in historical terms of misjudgment, but he didn't think that sending a satellite up was such a big deal. He was much more worried about the launch vehicle because it demonstrated that the Soviet Union had intercontinental missile capability. And that was a big deal because it meant the Soviet Union could launch a, a nuclear warhead from its territory and, and reach the United States. So his emphasis was, was on uh, military uh, deterrence and making sure the United States was not um, vulnerable to Soviet missile attacks much more than uh, scoring first in, in doing things in space. Uh -huh. So to kind of follow up, um, did the competition between the U.S. and Russia in pursuit of kind of missile technology um, in collaboration with like trying to build the most biggest nuclear arsenal kind of influence um, the space race or influence space technology at all? No, they really diverged very quickly. Uh, the kind of missiles that you wanted to use for intercontinental nuclear attacks, intercontinental ICBMs, turned out to be very different in design than uh, the ones you would want to use for uh, space launches. Uh, uh, you wanted, uh, with, with the uh, nuclear missiles, you wanted the ability to launch quickly and kind of on demand, so that meant solid fuels and, and, and launch readiness, where 
with space, it took a long time to prepare for a launch. Uh, the, the missile rocket that was used to launch the first Soviet satellites was first intended as an ICBM, but it turned out to be a terrible weapon system because it took two days or, or more to get it ready to launch. And when you were in a military uh, conflict situation, that was much too long. Mm -hmm. So um, switch gears a little bit. Obviously, the flight of Sputnik um, happened in 1957. Did that kind of change the perception of space um, kind of across the globe, and did it kind of increase the urgency among the U.S. government and the scientific community to try and um, develop uh, more space technology and catch up to the Soviets in that sense? Well, at least in this country, uh, the idea that we were going to go into space had become an element of popular culture in the 1950s uh, uh, with, with uh, magazines and television shows and uh, Disney Worlds with Tomorrowland. Uh, so, so the idea that uh, there was a satellite in space was not revolutionary. What was revolutionary that it was that it was the Soviet Union, not the United States, who was first. Uh, that surprised everybody around the world and kind of changed the perception of the technical capabilities and sophistication of the Soviet Union uh, and, and made it more of a threat to global stability. Uh-huh. Um, kind of another question, something I've been reading about, obviously, in the whole backdrop of the Cold War, um, was kind of the U-2 spy program developed by the U.S., and it was kind of in full swing by the mid-1950s. Um, did the program only focus on locating military complexes or nuclear arsenals, um, or was there also kind of the mission of trying to focus on um, different Soviet space technology centers um, or places where the Soviets were developing that type of space technology? Now, the U-2 was really uh, aimed at understanding Soviet military capability. Uh, where the factories were, where the air bases were. Uh, now, it turns out that, that the Soviet Union missile sites were at the same place as their space launch sites. So if you're looking for missile sites, you're also going to see the space launch sites. But that was not the primary uh, targets or rationale for the U-2 program. Uh-huh. So the switch gears, you obviously focused on uh, your book with John Kennedy um, and the space race. How critical was he in terms of kind of getting um, the U.S. in the direction of completing a mission to the moon? Well, uh, before Kennedy arrived in the White House in 1961, NASA had chosen a mission sending humans to the moon as its long-term goal and had begun to study it and briefed Eisenhower and his associates in the White House uh, in December of 1960, so just a few weeks before the end of the Eisenhower presidency, and he said, this is nonsense. I will never uh, spend any money on sending Americans to the moon. So uh, it, it, Kennedy obviously had a very different perception of, 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 of uh, how to uh, enter and win the space race. Uh, so, you know, without Kennedy, uh, would we have ever gone to the moon is a question I still ponder. Uh-huh. Why did John Kennedy kind of believe that it was, like, in the national interest um, for the United States to pursue a mission to the moon? Was it purely um, to look better than the Soviets, or do you think there was more to it than just that? Well, uh, no, it was basically to beat the Soviets. That that what he over and over said in private. Uh, again, you have to remember that the Soviets had, de had defined the race. They said that success in space is an indicator of the superiority of our society. And so when uh, the Soviet Union in April 12, 1961, launched the first human, and if anything, the reaction was even uh, stronger around the world uh, than it had been after Sputnik, Kennedy said this is unacceptable. We have to uh, uh, get back to a position where we belong, and that's as number one. So 
so he wrote April the 20th, 1961. You've, you've mentioned the, uh, the book, John F. Kennedy and the Race to the Moon. Uh, this is printed in there. He wrote a memo with a one-sentence so uh, directive. He said, find me a space program which promises dramatic results in which we could win. So space, dramatic, and win were the requirements. And the answer came back, the first thing that the United States had a very good chance of doing first was sending humans to the surface of the moon. Why? Because both the United States and the Soviet Union would have to build a new rocket not, uh, in, in order to do that. It would require the lifting power of a large new rocket. And uh, Werner von Braun, who was working for NASA by this time, uh, said, basically, you've got me, and therefore, we will uh, win a rocket-building race. Mm -hmm. So I did kind of want to follow up about Werner von Braun, because I think he's kind of an interesting character, and von Braun and Kennedy seem to work a lot together. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on who von Braun was and kind of what role that he had um, at NASA and in the space program? Well, I mean, von Braun was a, a very bright young member of the German nobility, the Prussian nobility, whose aptitude was recognized even in the late 20s and early 1930s. And when Hitler came to power, he, von Braun, went to work for the Nazi regime, uh, building weapons of war, uh, even though he and his associates were fascinated with space travel, what he was paid to do was build uh, uh, rockets that could deliver, uh, not nuclear at that point, but deliver uh, uh, explosives to, to an enemy. And so he, uh, from the 30s on through the end of World War II, uh, developed a, a rocket called the A-4, which is more generally known today as the V-2, uh, to attack uh, mainly England. Uh, he was captured, actually, he surrendered to American forces at the end of the World War II and was brought to the United States as kind of a high-level special treatment prisoner of war. Uh, under government control and government employ. He worked for the Army uh, from 1945 through 1960, and then with the creation of NASA, he and his rocket team, based in Alabama, at Huntsville, Alabama, were transferred to NASA. So uh, he, he, throughout the 50s, uh, Dr. Von Braun was an extremely articulate, very charming, charismatic person. He became a television star, uh, worked with Walt Disney, became uh, identified with, with the space uh, emerging space program uh, in, in the 50s. Um, so uh, as, as Kennedy uh, asked NASA, find me a program in which we could win, uh, NASA and the White House consulted von Braun. Uh, uh, he, 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 there were lots of people uh, between Kennedy and von Braun. They, you know, they, they were not in the same room very often. Okay. So another person that I kind of was also interested in was James Webb, specifically because when he took over NASA in 1961, he didn't necessarily come from scientific background, but he was known to be a really good administrator and a person who could kind of manage government budgets. Was he pretty important in being able to um, run NASA kind of like a bureaucratic agency as opposed to uh, like a scientist who was looking at technology? Uh, Mr. Webb was a, a consummate manager, uh, and without his uh, leadership at NASA, I doubt Apollo would have been successful. He was a, uh, a very bright lawyer by training. Uh, after World War II, he became Harry Truman's budget director, and then number two at the State Department under Dean Acheson at the uh, time of, of the creation of the post-World War II relationships with Western Europe, NATO, and the Marshall Plan. Uh, so he was 
thoroughly steeped in international and domestic policy. Uh, with Eisenhower as president, uh, Mr. Webb was a, a, a very committed Democrat. He went into the private sector and made some money and then was called back. And Kennedy said, I don't want a scientist. I want someone that deals with policy, that knows how to manage big things. Uh, and, and, and Webb was, uh, I think, almost uniquely qualified for the position he took on. Um, um, so let's switch gears a little bit to more of the space program. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the Mercury program um, that started in the late 50s was the first program. Um, can you kind of explain that and why that sort of ended and kind of led to the Apollo program? Well, if you're going to have a space program, uh, the same was true for the Soviet Union. One element was going to be uh, put a human into space and see what happens. We really did not know uh, before it actually took place what the impact of the gravity forces of launch, and then the rapid transition to the absence of gravity, uh, and then the resumption of gravity uh, as you re-entered, what that would do to the human organism. So Mercury was a very simple program. Put a, put a guy in a, in a capsule, put him in orbit, and see what happens. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was, it was not a program that uh, uh, had a, a long lifetime. Uh, NASA planned a follow-on to Mercury, which was, in fact, called Apollo put three people in orbit for up to two weeks, or maybe even fly them around the moon. And that program was already in existence uh, when Kennedy in May of 61 said we should go to the moon. So uh, uh, the, the, the lunar landing program was built on Apollo. That was not the original purpose of Apollo. Uh-huh. Um... So could you kind of explain or kind of talk about some of the early astronauts that participated in these programs, kind of who they were, where they came from, um, how they kind of ended up being involved uh, in these types of missions? Well, when the decision was made uh, to do Project Mercury, and that was made very quickly after NASA uh, began in 1958, uh, the question is, if you're going to put humans in space, which humans? And at first, NASA was just going to advertise and let people apply. They had a a set of criteria that people had to meet. Eisenhower said, "Eh, that will uh, be too complicated. The people that match this are military test pilots, so let's limit uh, applications to, or not not even applications, eligibility uh, to military test pilots or test pilots in general. And so the first two groups of astronauts, the Mercury 7 in 1959 and the next nine in 1962, I think, were all military or all test pilots. One of the 62 crowd was Armstrong, who was a civilian test pilot, but they were all uh, people used to taking risks uh, and and, and uh, uh had been doing that in their test pilot career. Uh, it was only with the uh, later generations that that uh, the openings were made a little more broadly so that scientists and engineers who were not test pilots could uh, qualify as astronauts. Uh, I think every, uh, every astronaut that flew during Apollo was a pilot uh, coming from, from military or civilian backgrounds with one exception, who was the scientist uh, Harrison Jack Schmidt on Apollo 17. Uh-huh. Um, so actually, just to go back to the Mercury program, um, in terms of the timeline, was the program always specifically built with the expectation that as soon as we could successfully get someone in orbit, we can move towards Apollo in getting someone um, actually to the moon. Well, that's not the way it worked in the conception. Remember I said a couple of minutes ago that Apollo existed before the decision to go to the moon. Uh Uh, So 
there was a logical sequence. Mercury was a short-term program just to get the basic information and the impact of being in space on a human. Then there was going to be a next follow-on program, uh, which was called Apollo. Uh, so they followed logically. And then, then the decision was made to, to transform Apollo into the lunar landing program. Uh, so it changed the character of the program, uh, rem, uh, you know, greatly. Uh-huh. Um, so another question that I've been thinking about, did the United States kind of attempt to ever pursue cooperation with the Soviet Union in joint space operations, or did kind of the backdrop of the Cold War always mean that the United States and Soviet Union would be competing with each other? Well, Kennedy thought that space might be an area of reducing tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, in his inaugural address in January of 1961, he reached out and said, let us explore the stars together, reached out to the Soviet Union, didn't get any response. Uh, two weeks after announcing the program to go to the moon, he met Peter Khrushchev for the one and only time in June of 1961 in Vienna and, and suggested to Khrushchev, why don't we do it together? And Khrushchev said no, uh, recognized it would mean revealing just how weak the Soviet Union was in most aspects of missile and rocket technology. Uh, and then uh, in the most publicly possible way, uh, on September the 20th, 1963, Kennedy went before the General Assembly of the United Nations and proposed making Apollo into a cooperative enterprise. And I think he was serious about it. Uh, and, and Khrushchev was thinking about a positive response in, in September and October of 1963. Then Kennedy was killed and, and his personal momentum behind cooperation disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, so I did kind of want to follow up about um, Kennedy's assassination, which happened in November of 1963. Did that kind of have any impact on the space program um, in terms of the budget or the money allocated towards it? Um, did it sort of stag stagnate because of it? Um, or did it not have any effect at all? Well, it had a very strong effect. I think that, that uh, Apollo became a memorial to a fallen, fallen young president. And uh, while there was not a lot of money for other parts of the space program, Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy's successor, made sure that Apollo was adequately funded. And after the Apollo 1 fire, uh, there was no question or no discussion of canceling Apollo. So, uh, Kennedy's assassination, uh, sadly, I think, was critical to the uh, sustained commitment to send people to the moon. Uh-huh. Now, obviously, Lyndon Johnson took over and then was um, reelected after. Um, how important was he to the space program? Had he always been um, sort of involved in that area, or is that something that he got involved with only after President Kennedy's assassination? Uh, uh, Johnson as senator. Uh, after Sputnik, was perhaps the leading member of Congress in pushing for a very active, uh, more active than Eisenhower wanted, response to the space program, uh, response to the Soviet successes. So in a sense, he was one of the fathers of NASA in the Senate. Uh, and he helped create a White House-level coordinating board called the National Aeronautics and Space Council, to give top-level policy attention uh, to space. Uh, Eisenhower didn't use that council. Kennedy, when he was elected, said, well, what do I do? And he decided to make Lyndon Johnson as vice president, the head of the Space Council. And so it was Johnson that conducted the review that led to the recommendation, uh, let's go to the moon. Uh, after that recommendation was the Johnson people and the Kennedy people didn't get along very well, and Johnson got kind of sidelined in the last couple of years of, of the Kennedy presidency. 
but but he was very much involved and aware and and enthusiastic about the program from almost the get get go. Uh huh. Um, and I think um, one of the more interesting aspects of this time was obviously the advent of TV and kind of the ability for Americans to watch space missions in real time. Um, how big of a deal was it? At, for ordinary Americans to have this kind of access um, to the space race, um, and did this kind of influence the urgency among um, the U.S. government to um, beat the Soviets in the space race with having so many kind of like average Americans being able to watch um, these types of things? Well, first you have to recognize that it was a gutsy decision uh, on, personally, John Kennedy's part to televise the first launches, uh, the first mm-hmm. launch, the suborbital launch, <coughs> excuse me, with Alan Shepard in May of 1961, and up mm-hmm. to the day before the launch, it wasn't clear that it would be on live television because these things blew up fairly frequently. Uh, and and uh, uh, so his Kennedy's advisor said, do you really want to see somebody get killed on live television? Uh, the, the space people said, you know, it's going to be successful. We've done everything possible to make sure, so let's do it live. So, uh, Kennedy set the precedent that there would be live television. Um, I think it, it certainly, uh, this was when I was growing up, uh, the fact that the launches were on television uh, was kind of a big deal. It, it created a, a public awareness of of what we were up to and excitement because it was all new and the astronauts were heroes. They were uh, in in magazines and television. So uh, I think it was important, but probably secondary to the uh, political commitment among national leadership to do this. Uh Uh-huh. Another question that I kind of have was the military's influence on NASA and the space race. Did they dictate some of the expectations that and missions that NASA developed, or was NASA um, specifically um, or confined to being strictly a scientific and technological pursuit? Well, I uh, have to remember when uh, Sputnik went up and there was a national debate over how to organize space, the mm-hmm. Air Force in particular, but the DOD overall, uh, wanted the mission and was very unhappy when this new civilian agency was created. Uh, so the military went off and started its own very active uh, military and intelligence program running in parallel to NASA, but uh, most of it classified and so out of the public view. So there was there was a military space program. When Kennedy came in, he had said some things during the campaign that made the Department of Defense and again, the Air Force in particular, think maybe he would be sympathetic to increasing the Air Force role. They soon found out that wasn't the case. He wanted the civilian program. So uh, there were occasional forays. Uh, the, the program between Mercury and Apollo was called Gemini, and Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, uh, found that, that there were things about uh, the Gemini program, uh, observing the Earth from space, uh, being able to uh, maneuver and dock with potentially Soviet spacecraft. So uh, McNamara tried to take Gemini away from NASA and, and was not successful. The major contribution of the military was allowing a number of military officers uh, and in particular Air Force officers, to uh, come to NASA on, on loan and play key roles in the uh, management of the Apollo program. So there were lots of military people involved in Apollo, but they were there uh, on leave from their DOD positions. Uh-huh. So um, to switch gears a little bit to the Apollo program after Kennedy's assassination, um, can you kind of explain – um, some of the early missions of the Apollo program, um, where they kind of designed to steadily get closer and closer to the moon, or was Apollo always these missions are going to get to the moon, but obviously um, they didn't all get to the moon until Apollo 11. 
Well, you know, there was, uh, I mean, Apollo was a very well-planned and well-organized technical program. And so the people that did the planning uh, created a stepwise sequence of missions uh, that would test the equipment, first of all, without a crew aboard, then with a crew aboard, and 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 uh, so do a sequence of a series of missions that would test all the capabilities that were needed to land on the moon before you did the first landing. So you had uh, uh, at Apollo Seven, which was the first uh, mission with a crew that tested the redesigned capsule after the Apollo One fire in low Earth orbit. Then you had Apollo 8, which flew into lunar orbit but didn't land. Um, uh, that tested all the navigation and mission control capabilities of the mission far away from Earth. Then you had Apollo 9, uh, which actually should have come before 8, but the lunar module uh, wasn't ready, was running behind schedule. So Apollo 9 test, uh, tested in Earth orbit, uh, the lunar module and the ability to come back and dock with the command module. Then Apollo 10 was a full-blown dress rehearsal that flew to within 40,000 feet of the lunar surface, but did everything in the mission except land. And then mm-hmm. Apollo 11, of course, was the first attempt at a landing. What was remarkable is that each of these missions was successful. The NASA people fully expected the, their, that there would be problems along the way uh, and, and that they might have to fly one of these missions uh, twice or three times before moving on to the next step. So it, it, in a sense, it was an accident that the first landing mission. It's because everything before 11 had gone uh, very successfully. Uh-huh. So obviously the Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969 was a critical moment in space history and for the space race. Um, did this kind of mean that the United States won um, the space race or did kind of that pursuit of space technology and having um, missions after Apollo 11 continue? Well, I think, remember what Kennedy said back in 61, find me a space program which promises dramatic results in which we could win. Mm-hmm. Landing on the moon the first time was that program. So I, I think with Apollo 11, we won the space race. The Soviet Union had entered the race late and never gave it adequate uh, financing, uh, but, but built a moon rocket, uh, just couldn't get it to work. Uh, so there was a race. Uh, and 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 and, uh, and the United States won it. Uh, Richard Nixon, who was the president by that time, uh, rather quickly after Apollo 11, decided that that all right, we won uh, the race, so there's no sense to continue to race. And and uh, uh, his administration and NASA canceled uh, two of the remaining Apollo missions, uh, and he said there will be no. Uh, uh, dramatic ex- exploration follow-on. We're not next going to Mars. We're going to mm-hmm. stay Earth and and make space a kind of routine part of life rather than than something exciting and exploratory. Uh huh. So to kind of follow up, did NASA and the space program ever have the goal of kind of pursuing space travel um, beyond the moon or establishing a permanent? Um, uh, like scientific outposts on the moon, or um, did it kind of all just die after the Apollo 11 mission when Nixon kind of said, okay, the race is over? No, uh, I mean, the, the space people in, in NASA, in industry, uh, people who are paying attention wanted to keep going. Uh, NASA proposed uh, to Nixon that he start a program which would start with a 12-person space station in low Earth orbit, uh, then begin to work on on establishing permanent presence on the moon, and fly uh, the first crews to Mars 
in the 1980s. That, that proposition was put before Nixon in the White House, and he said, no, no we're not going to do that, and made the decision to approve the space shuttle, which could only operate in low Earth orbit. Uh, and, and with that decision, uh, uh, basically uh, made sure that we would not explore uh, beyond the uh, near regions of, of, of the Earth for now 48 years. Mm -hmm. So to kind of ask some concluding questions, what do you think the legacy of President Kennedy is to the space race and um, the American space program in general? Well, I think Kennedy's name will always be associated with Apollo 11 and with, with, with humans, Americans on the moon. Um, sadly enough, during all the time that Apollo 11 was being celebrated with Richard Nixon in the White House, he never once mentioned Kennedy's name. Uh, the country certainly associated uh, the lunar landing program with Kennedy. Uh, and, and I think, you know, 500 years from now when history is written, uh, that, that Apollo uh, and Kennedy will be remembered uh, for having, uh, at that particular point in human history, done something very bold and very dramatic. Uh-huh. Do you think kind of the rivalry um, between the United States and the Soviet Union played an important role in the pursuit of space travel? Um, to the United States um, to commit uh, lots of um, financial resources to the program and lots of personnel to the program? Well, I think without the Cold War, without U.S.-Soviet rivalry, uh, Apollo would not have happened. It was a Cold War activity. I asked myself, would we have gone to the moon by now, uh, you know, mm -hmm. coming up on 51 years after the first landing, would, would we have, uh, as, as, as a people, been willing to bear the expense if it hadn't been seen as part of the uh, global competition with the Soviet Union? So, uh, and we've been trying to recreate Apollo ever since. And I think the conditions that made it possible were unique to the time and the personalities. Uh-huh. Um, do you think that kind of how um, space race ended uh, with the United States winning had any impact on how the Cold War ended? Well, it depends on when you date the uh, end of the Cold War. It certainly mm -hmm. demonstrated to the uh, people of the world and the people of the United States, uh, American achievement, American excellence, maybe American exceptionalism. Uh, and to the degree that, that the recognition that the United States was indeed the uh, leading world power, uh, I, I think it contributed to uh, the, the ultimate end of the Cold War. But uh, there was still competition in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. um, can you actually just uh, briefly elaborate on kind of what um, the space program kind of looked in the 70s and 80s. I know we kind of focused on the race in the 50s and 60s, or, yeah, the 50s and 60s. Um, what were kind of some of the missions uh, that were launched by the Soviet Union and U.S. Um, in the 70s and 80s uh, before the end of the Cold War? Well, uh, it, it, that's a little complex to break down. First, uh -huh. uh, we haven't talked at all about in parallel with the human spaceflight program, NASA developed a very vigorous and very successful robotic space science program. And mm -hmm. continued uh, in, in, in the 1970s, sent the Viking spacecraft to land on Mars and sent the two Voyager spacecraft to fly out into the solar system past mm -hmm. uh, all the planets except Pluto. Uh, I think Pluto is a planet, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the Soviet Union switched uh, to a space station program. So the Soviets uh, had a program called Salyut in the uh, 70s and early 80s, followed by a program called Mir, uh, which was a, a modest-sized space station that was the first element launched in 86. 
the United States developed the space shuttle during the 70s, first launch in 1981, and, and uh, flew the shuttle waiting for a space station. <coughs> President Reagan approved development of the space station in 1984. So we've conducted a human spaceflight program that has been limited to low Earth orbit, uh, and, and a uh, robotic program that has explored the solar system and, and the cosmos with with remarkable success. Uh huh. Um, so thanks for that brief um, talk. Um, what do you think, kind of like the future of space, kind of holds? Do you think it would take kind of another Cold War between, for example, China and the United States for um, Cubans to kind of pursue that kind of next leap in uh, the pursuit of space technology to, you know, establishing a permanent outpost on um, the moon or getting humans to the Mars. Um, yeah, I just kind of wanted your take on what kind of the future of space is going to hold over the next decade or kind of over the next 20 years. Well, one thing that's very different now than was the case back in, in uh, the Kennedy period is the uh, existence of billionaires willing to spend their own money on doing exciting things in space. And I'm thinking of Elon Musk with SpaceX uh -huh. and Jeff Bezos with his company Blue Origin. Uh, so uh, I think we will go back in a slow and steady way, I hope steady, uh, to uh, resuming travel beyond low Earth orbit, uh, we will go back to the moon and find out whether it's worthwhile being there. Uh, we don't really know. There are a lot of people who think there are resources there, and there's lots of scientifically interesting things to do there. But we haven't been there enough to know the answer to that question. So I think we have to finish exploring the moon. And I think inevitably, at some point in the future, some humans will travel to Mars uh, to see what it, what's there and see whether uh, how feasible it is to to do that on anything like a regular basis. I mean, Mr. Musk talks about, I think, in a fantasy, establishing a million-person city on Mars. I don't see that in any uh, reasonable time frame. And I think eventually humans will travel to the red planet. Uh-huh. Um, so to kind of conclude, what has been the most interesting or rewarding aspect of your kind of research in, um, to John Kennedy or kind of just the space history in general? Well, you know, I could have done an environmental policy and looked at dead fish and, and, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I got by choosing focus on space issues to associate myself with uh, something really exciting. Uh, I was at the Apollo 11 launch to the moon. Uh, you know, I, uh, I saw the astronauts on their way to the moon that morning. Uh, uh -huh. I've gotten to know Neil Armstrong and John Glenn and, and their successors. So the association with the people who are actually doing this, I think is the most rewarding part of having a career working on, on space history. Awesome. So um, final thing, do you think there's anything you would like to add that, you know, I didn't ask you or, you know, anything that uh, my listeners um, should know kind of about the space race or just kind of space history in general that I missed? Well, there's lots of history. I mean, so uh, I think pay attention. Next few years are going to be uh, very interesting. Uh, hopefully, we'll be launching uh, uh, U.S. citizens on U.S. spacecraft within the next few months. Uh, we haven't done that since 2011. So there's a, there's an interesting future to pay attention to. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you uh, for taking time out of your day to interview. I think this has probably been one of my most favorite interviews of the podcast so far because I really enjoy space history, and you're definitely one of the experts out there, so I definitely want to thank you, and uh, I look forward to kind of continuing uh, to read about your work, so uh, thank you again. Thanks very much.
Now we just finished up that interview with Dr. Long, John Log, uh, Logsdon. Again, one of my, <laughs> probably my favorite interviews just because again, uh, my interest in kind of space history has, you know, increased exponentially. Um, Cause I always think it's super interesting with the space race and kind of the backdrop of the cold war how the Soviet Union and the United States were really motivated to kind of just one-up each other. And that was kind of the true goal of the whole space race. But, um, you know, watching, um, I think it was CNN films, like did the 50-year, or did the documentary last year for Apollo 11 for the 50-year anniversary, which was last year, which was awesome. I would definitely re recommend going and watching that. Uh, excuse me. But also listening to, or I mean, listening to, you know, Dr. Logston and his expertise, but also reading about different, you know, people who, you know, really led this effort, specifically with John Kennedy, obviously without John Kennedy, you know, the, sp the space race wouldn't have happened. I mean, I think it's super interesting kind of look at President Eisenhower, who, you know, the only real reason why he was interested or not interested in funding NASA was that he was a fiscal conservative and, you know, Kennedy thought that it was in the national interest to pursue space travel on a large scale and get to the moon and beat the Soviets. And obviously that 1961 address um, at Rice University, um, as Dr. Uh, Logston wrote, I believe, um, is really just one of the boldest, you know, statements and proclamations ever done by a U.S. president um, because it was you know, where the space program was in 61 um, and how quickly we were able to get to the moon in 1969 and the subsequent missions that came after with Apollo 12, 13, 14, and 15 um, really was impressive. But I also think kind of the space race after Apollo 11 is overlooked, um, something that we really didn't get in depth about, um, something that I would probably be interested in. Um, and do it later, but you know, it didn't really stop there. Although the United States had technically won the space race, you know, the U.S. still sent four, uh, five more missions to the moon after that, um, and were able to, you know, explore the moon more. Uh, the Soviets kind of focused more on building a space, uh, a permanent space base on um, the moon, which was. Um, probably not viable because they can't focus a ton on actually safely getting the people there. It was more on, huh, let's set up a base on the moon uh, for fun, which, you know, classic Soviet. But uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend going and looking at some of those, uh, some of the scholarly work done by Dr. Logston, and there's a lot of other books, great books on it and documentaries about it. Um, you know, I always think it's interesting just because, again, we went through this period in, you know, 1960, uh, in the 50s and 60s of having, you know, sp uh, this tremendous push to in space exploration, but, you know, it's kind of, you know, died off because of the success of it, to be quite frank. But I think it's super interesting right now because of this kind of revivalism, as I you know, will keep going back to it, of kind of split exploration and this idea of going, you know, beyond the moon to places like Mars and exploring the outer reaches of our galaxy. You know, all this stuff is super cool just because, again, you know, this revival of interest, I think, is going to be super important. And like I said, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what kind of like the private side of things, specifically with like Elon Musk, how, you know, viable that is, um, you know, also obviously the US and Chinese have kind of revived their space exploration programs. Um, India has also been doing it. Russia has been also doing it. Um, so it's definitely, and obviously with like the International Space Station, um, with, you know, different astronauts from all over the world being there. Uh, super cool. Um, so, again, uh, this is probably one of my favorite periods of history. I would definitely recommend going and, you know, reading more on it because I think it's – or watching it. If you don't like the read, you can watch it. I think, again, the Apollo 11 is super cool because they took original footage and you know, made it in the HD. Um, yeah, so – that was super cool. Um, 
So um, just to wrap up, go again, follow us on Instagram at History Does You for updates on upcoming episodes and past episodes. Uh, give us a, a review on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify. Um, or please uh, feel free to email me about a certain topic that you want to talk about or want me to talk about. I'm sure I can find an expert in that field. Uh, or, yeah, um, thank you for the listen. And uh, we definitely have some really some more content um, coming up in the next w- few weeks that I think is super cool. So thanks again.